Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the big political stories this week, President Trump ousted his third national security advisor, John Bolton. And in typical Trump fashion, he made the announcement on Twitter. The president asked for his resignation over major disagreements over how to handle big foreign policy issues like Iran, North Korea, and Afghanistan. For more on the story, we spoke to Steph Kite. She's a reporter for Axios on how it all played out. So this is something that a lot of us have been expecting for a while now. It's kind of been uh, known that Trump and Bolton don't always get along, but we weren't ever sure when was going to be the last day that Bolton would be the national security advisor. And again, this afternoon, we heard from the president himself through Twitter, as we've seen for a few departures from the White House. And he said that he has disagreed with many of Bolton's suggestions, as did others in the administration, and that he asked for Bolton to resign and that Bolton gave his resignation the next morning that he thanked him for his service. But again, we saw Bolton push back on Twitter saying that, no, 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 Trump didn't tell him to resign. He offered his resignation the night before and then the next morning actually turned in his resignation, which Trump accepted. So we do know that Bolton is pushing back on the idea that he was fired or pushed out from the White House and that it was his own initiative. So there's still some uncertainty as to how exactly that out. And that tweet that John Bolton fired off was 12 minutes after President Trump fired off his tweet. So he wanted to try to set the record straight as much as he could in, in his own eyes. And even a Washington Post reporter, Robert Costa, chimed in on Twitter saying that Bolton sent him a message saying, let's be clear, I resigned last night. So I mean, just this kind of back and forth was par for the course, I guess, for the Trump administration, play, things playing out on Twitter mm-hmm. that way. But this comes at, a, at an interesting time. There's a lot of things going on on the foreign policy arena, and losing another national security advisor is pretty tough. I think someone reported that Trump is going to be the first president to have four national security advisors mm-hmm. in his first term. Yeah, and that's something that we do see over and over again in this administration, that people who just don't jive with the president, who are butting heads with the president or don't sign on to the president's agenda, end up leaving. And we've seen kind of that high turnover at the White House over and over again in multiple positions, and especially this position. And of course, it's important because this is one of the biggest positions that really faces the outside world, where the U.S. is really represented on the global stage. And it'll be interesting to see who Trump picks next and which direction he goes in next. And I think it'll give us a good sense of what he wants to get done internationally in this last year before the 2020 election. And of course, Bolton was one of the most hawkish foreign policy advisors in the White House. And to lose him, I think, could have a very significant change in the way the Trump White House deals with foreign policy issues. And the president at times would even jokingly, I guess, would say if, you know, if John Bolton Mm -hmm. had his way, we'd be in four wars by now. Where did it all go wrong for them? I know a lot of it centers around issues with Iran and North Korea. Absolutely. As we reported a little bit ago that you're right, Trump would would kind of joke on Bolton with foreign leaders, kind of joking about how he wants to get into a war. There's never been a war that he doesn't like. And these kind of joking mannerisms about John Bolton's national 
security emphasis. And they really did butt heads on a lot of things. And like you said, Iran was a big one that, of course, recently that has been ongoing, where Bolton would really want to be tough on Iran, where Trump really likes the deal-making way of things. North Korea has also been a big point of tension where Trump continues to want to woo the North Koreans, whereas Bolton would say, no, they can't be trusted at all. And of course, most recently, with the president inviting the Taliban to Camp David in the U.S., that was another thing most recently that flared up that Bolton was opposed to, was reportedly opposed to. That created some more recent tension between the two. Yeah, on Iran, I know that the two butted heads against the airstrike that was called off after Iran shot down the American drone. John Bolton was in favor of that airstrike. And then he's never been a fan of the president meeting with Kim Jong-un, especially after they met in the demilitarized zone, because he just doesn't trust anybody. And the question after that is, how does this make us look in the eyes of our foreign adversaries? Because uh, an advisor to President Hassan Rouhani in Iran has said that Bolton's departure was a result of Iran's resistance to Trump's maximum pressure campaign. He said that it's proof that they're able to manage U.S. policies on Iran. This certainly is going to change the way that these nations view the U.S. It certainly throws an element of uncertainty, whether there will still be kind of this hawkish advisor who is pushing Trump to be tough on these countries. And I think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, because when it comes to foreign policy, the president kind of has two instincts. And one is to be really tough on nations that have been bad actors, that have hurt Americans and who threaten American security. But at the same time, he is a deal maker and he likes the diplomacy of getting to know these powerful foreign leaders. And of course, there's also the fact that he wants to draw down troops from Afghanistan. So he has this mixture of foreign policy instincts that seem to be um, in conflict with one another. And it'll be interesting to see who he chooses as his next national security advisor. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. A major bill rewriting California's employment law has been sent to the desk of Governor Gavin Newsom. This law could have far-reaching effects in reclassifying independent contractors as employees and could potentially change the business models of gig economy companies like Uber and Lyft. For more on the story, we spoke to Alejandro Lazo, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, on the impact of this bill. While Uber and Lyft and some of the other so-called gig economy companies have gotten a lot of attention because they're the ones who've been kind of loudest and then sort of really making the most visible efforts to gain an exemption from this bill. You're right. There's a ton of industries here in California that will likely be affected from trucking to janitorial services, as you were saying. What the intention of the bill was, was to really just take aim at this phenomenon that's kind of arisen in the modern workplace work environment. And that's just the rise of contractors doing what employees had done formerly. And that was exactly what was taken aim at with this measure. Now, obviously, this has big impacts for companies like Uber, 
Lyft, DoorDash, and just a number of these so-called gig economies that have kind of grown up and come of age over the last decade or less here in California, and particularly where I live and work in the San Francisco Bay Area. You know, they're all kind of headquartered around here, based around here, and have kind of gotten their start around here. And they say that they work off of the app, you know, when they want to, and they are not employees of the company. And these companies say this will have a big change for those drivers, for those workers, as well as for the business models of these companies. Right. And that's one of the big arguments from Uber and Lyft is that it would really change their whole business model. The company and the drivers both say that they do like the flexibility of picking and choosing when they want to work, when they want to take rides. And one of the main things that the big companies have been saying is that with the passage of this bill, they might have to start instituting shifts. You know, you can only drive at this time. You have to drive in a certain area and you lose that little bit of flexibility. I think Lyft specifically already started telling workers that these changes might be coming. And they're saying that a lot of their drivers just might not be able to do it. A lot of their, I think they said 91% of their drivers drive fewer than 20 hours and they're thinking they're going to lose a lot of those people. Lyft in particular has sent out that warning to its drivers. Now, Uber has taken a different stand. They are saying that we don't believe that this law really changes anything, that we do not have a classification issue, even under this new law that will, uh, calling it a law because the governor has intended to sign it. And if everything kind of goes as you know, the political actors in Sacramento have indicated that things will go, this bill will become a law. And Uber has said, hey, look, we don't think this changes anything for us We're just going to deal with this in the courts and through arbitration. If somebody says we've misclassified a driver, we're just going to deal with that, but we're not changing anything. I think anyone who's familiar with the company would probably recognize that this is a familiar approach for the company just to sort of move forward with its business. How do the drivers feel about this? I've been seeing that they're pretty split. You know, I, I was covering a lot of legislation in Sacramento. So the people that showed up, to voice their opinion, you know, on the political process while this bill was coming together were those who were organized and in support of it. These are the folks that do want the status of being an employee. Now, both of the companies, Uber and Lyft, have told us that there are plenty of drivers who like the flexibility, as they say, of being an independent contractor. And I will say that I've certainly heard from drivers who have reached out to me and they've said exactly that. Like, I do enjoy my flexibility. I do think this bill is bad. And obviously there's no way really to pull, I think, individual drivers, but certainly there appears to be a split, which is, you know, as you would imagine, natural. (laughs) Even anecdotally, just getting into an Uber or Lyft, I usually tend to talk to the drivers and kind of ask them some of these questions. And same thing. I just hear it on both sides. They want some more protections, but they do really love that flexibility and picking up and working and not working whenever they want. So yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see the way this whole thing develops. Alejandro Lazo, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This next story comes from the biohacker community. There's a new DIY implant called PegLeg that lets you stream movies and music from inside your leg. PegLeg can be accessed by any Wi-Fi enabled device to share and upload files, stream movies and music, and act as a server for an anonymous chat room. 
the big question still is why would you ever want to do this? Daniel Oberhaus, writer at Wired, joins us for what Pegleg is all about and also details his own experience with biohacking. So I've known Michael Lawfer for a few years. He's probably best known in the biohacking community as the public face of Four Thieves Vinegar Collective. And they're trying to make open source medicine so anyone can download and brew their own life-saving drugs. So he comes from a pretty controversial space, but with this new project, he wanted to do something that was more um, biohacking in the you know really sci-fi sense of it. So implanting something in your leg that augments human functionality. So the origins of this was Michael and a bunch of other biohackers get together every year for a meetup called Grindfest out in the California desert. And they spend the weekend working on new implants, hacking stuff together. And Michael had a device called a pirate box, which creates a local mesh network that anyone can connect to and share files. It's basically just a little Wi-Fi router that you'd have in your house. So they stripped that down to just its bare essentials. They added a way to wirelessly charge it, kind of like you charge a cell phone by putting it on a pad. They dipped it in some bio-friendly resin. And then within 48 hours of coming up with this idea, they had a implantable device and a person named Left, that's her alias, she implanted it in her arm and became the first person to have a wireless network device in their body. Wow. Now, okay, so you said it's kind of like a router. It has space for storage. I think he is the one that they made is has like a terabyte in it or something. How big is this thing? So the first generation, I would say it's about the size of a pack of cigarettes, but like a little bit of a slimmer profile. So it was really big as far as implants go. Most people who get them, myself included, I actually have a chip in my hand and they're not much bigger than a grain of rice. So these things are large. The one that Lawfer got in his leg is a bit smaller. It's about the size of a pack of gum and, you know, maybe three inches by, you know, an inch or so thick. But, you know, a pretty substantial procedure to, you know, open up your leg and stick something that large in it, especially when it's all done out of someone's garage. And the big question is, what is the whole purpose of this? Obviously, it's to store files, transport files, download files, share files, that whole thing. But why? Why would you do it? I think it really depends on who you ask. There's been three people who've gotten this device in their bodies. I spoke with each of them and they each had a different answer. On the one hand, there are the people who enjoy biohacking just as a form of uh, personal expression. So it's similar to a functional tattoo or a piercing to them, something cool to have. Michael Lawfer is a lot more politically motivated. He sees it as a way to avoid surveillance, to allow free sharing, and basically to undermine the centralized structure of the normal internet by creating mesh networks that are literally in your body. So it spans the spectrum from this is just something that's really cool to this is something that will help me subvert the state. <laughs> wow. And uh, <laughs> it's so crazy. Okay, so describe how this works, because you actually got a chance to connect to it and use it and download something off of it. Yeah, it's pretty simple. So Michael came into our office. He held up a wireless battery that you might use to charge your phone or anything else that can be charged wirelessly. And he just puts it on his leg or in his pant pocket, and then the device automatically powers on. It creates a local Wi-Fi hotspot, basically. So I use my phone and I connected to the device's network and it serves a really simple interface, really text heavy, kind of 
reminds me of the way the internet used to be in like the early 90s. But there's a place where you can upload and download files. So anyone who connects to it can upload whatever they want to his leg. And they can also download whatever is stored on there. There's no security or anything. There's like a little chat room that you can chat with anyone else who's connected to his leg. They can do an anonymous chat. There's a forum. So it's a really simple, easy to use interface. And anyone who is in the area can connect to it. Now, I have a question a little bit more about biohacking and implanting devices in one's body. You can't just take this thing. You said, as, at least in, uh, in Michael's case, it was about the size of a pack of gum. You can't really just take this to your local doctor and say, hey, can you open me up and implant this thing? Where do you go? How did he get this implanted? Michael got his implanted by a man named Cassix, who uh, has his own little DIY operating room that he runs out of his garage. So he actually has implanted dozens of devices by himself. So if you have the stomach for it, you know, there's lots of places online that explain how to do this. But everyone makes sure to kind of warn anyone who's interested that this is really dangerous and there's no guarantees that this can go wrong. So the person who did Michael's implant, he's really experienced, has gained a lot of trust in the community for doing this for years. As far as I know, totally successfully, there hasn't really been any serious mishaps, but the danger's already there. You know, you're doing things that haven't really been tested outside of a handful of people messing around with technology. So there's not really any of the safety there. So right. I think if you wanted to get it done, you'd have to find someone who's really comfortable with a scalpel and was willing to <laughs> cut open your body for you. <laughs> I mean, the procedure uh, from reading through this, the procedure took about a half hour and Michael said that he passed out at one point and maybe threw up also. Yeah. He said he passed out a little bit and threw up. I actually saw all the videos that they took while they were doing this wow. and it's just a body horror. It's really <laughs> disgusting, but you know, if you have the stomach for it. <laughs> wow. Now I have a question for you. You mentioned that you uh, have a chip implanted in yourself. What is the purpose of that? How did that whole thing happen? So that I got a couple of years ago when I was at DEF CON, which is a big hacker conference in Las Vegas that happens every year. And they have a village where biohackers meet up and kind of talk shop. And every year they do implants. So at the behest of a friend of mine who is really into the scene, I got dragged along. And for 50 bucks, they would put a NFC, a near field communication chip in my hand. So I said, why not? And so now I have this little tiny chip in between my forefinger and thumb. It can connect to any device that has an NFC reader. So most modern cell phones, it doesn't store a whole lot of data. But if you hold my, like, for instance, if you were to put your phone up to my hand, it would load my contact information into your phone wow. automatically. Yeah, but you can program it to open doors, that sort of thing. That's pretty crazy right there. <laughs> so <laughs> what was that implant procedure like? You said it was 50 bucks. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you got I mean, to be comfortable was, with somebody doing it too. But how, how does that work? So, I mean, it was just, you know, there was a room in the back of the hotel and there was a guy there with a huge needle. I mean, I, I have, I've gotten several piercings throughout my life and tattoos. So that part didn't bother me so much, but I'd never seen a needle that large that wasn't drawing blood. And they just put the, the little chip, it looks kind of like a grain of rice inside the needle. And then they poke it in and you can kind of watch it go in your hand, which is a really weird feeling, but really painless, honestly. So <laughs> And so now you have this, uh, you know, the, you mentioned a couple of the capabilities that it has. How often do you use it? Do you find it useful? I rarely use it for anything useful. It's more of just a fun party trick and kind of a way to support biohacking as a culture. I really like the things that these people are doing and kind of the spirit behind it. Even if I don't want to get, say, one of these peg leg devices in my leg just yet, I'm really glad there's people out there doing it. So it's just kind of a way to, to broach the topic with people and kind of demystify it and 
people always have the exact same kind of shocked reaction when you <laughs> tell them you got <laughs> right. shipped. Daniel Overhouse, writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Daily Dive.